from the beginning, really, uh, at least as far as I know, uh, when they moved to St. Louis especially, uh, the library has been a special feature of Concordia Seminary. And it's pretty evident that there was a, an intentional emphasis on uh, two aspects of the collection. One is obvious, Luther and Reformation and, and doctrinal theology. I mean, that's sort of obvious. We have uh, scores of books of Concord, you know. Um, but the other emphasis was on Bible. And, and uh, not only on commentaries, and, uh, and this was surprising to me, sort of German scholarship from the 19th century, 20th century. There's actually a wide range of British scholarship in the late 19th century in a library, which is surprising because they didn't really interact with it much and probably couldn't read it, but it's here in a library. Uh, along with that, there was an intentional effort to collect um, uh, Bibles and, and obviously Luther Bibles, but especially, and I think beginning after the war is when this kind of started, uh, somewhat before the war, the Second World War, but an emphasis on, on manuscript facsimiles, uh, to have these available for research and uh, a study, and along with that, a wide collection of papyrus uh, texts, documents, the whole section of PA up there, uh, two or three rows. Um, I did my graduate work at Leeds in, in the UK, and, and I actually had a worse library there for my work than I would have had by staying here, <laughs> uh, just because of the resources we had. So it's a phenomenal collection. And I asked Dave Berger, our head librarian, to pull a few things out and uh, uh, at least talk through a couple of these. Biblical manuscripts, and we're displaying New Testament manuscripts here uh, specifically, uh, fall into three categories that are roughly chronological. You have papyrus manuscripts written on papyrus uh, down through about the seventh century. A second category is uh, majuscule manuscripts, or unchul, they're sometimes called, on parchment uh, written from the fourth uh, to the tenth century. And then minuscule manuscripts also on parchment, sometimes paper later on, in a, a cursive handwriting from the 10th to the, well, to the printing press. And um, we have just sort of a sampling of, of uh, each of these here to, to kind of take a look at and get a little bit of a, a background. What they pull out here is uh, the Chester Beatty uh, 1 papyrus, which is uh, we call P45, which is dated to sometime after probably 200, 250-ish. It's a, a bit of a fuzzy date. One of the unique features of this manuscript is that it's the only manuscript prior to the fourth century that has the four Gospels and Acts together. Uh, Acts was typically copied uh, either by itself. Uh, we have, I think, four now. One was just discovered last year, manuscripts of Acts from prior to the fourth century, and they're all just Acts by itself, uh, which is kind of odd because, you know, we think of Luke-Acts. But Acts and Luke never appear together in a manuscript. It's always either separated by the Gospels or by itself. And later on, after uh, they split the Bible back up, I'll talk about that in a second, they would copy Acts with the Catholic epistles or the Pauline epistles, not with the Gospels. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting canonical history with the book of Acts. It's a little bit of a, you know, umding by itself. And um, it's treated that way in the manuscripts. Um, P45 is uh, a little bit unusual. Uh, also, in terms of the format, what usually, and then it's laid out kind of the wrong way, what usually happens with gospel manuscripts is they're laid out the long way. And, and the thicker you fold a book, of course, the more pages you fit in there, and you know this when you fold paper, it sticks out in the middle, you know. So what they would do is slice that extra bit off, which would leave you with a tall, skinny book. So typically your gospel papyrus manuscripts would look like that. Um, and so this is an unusual format. Um, what is striking about the format issue is if you take a, a papyrus codex, a papyrus book, about the maximum size you could make it, 
is almost identical to the size of a four gospel codex. But it is interesting from a canonical perspective. Uh, uh, did they come up with four gospels because they ran out of hard drive space? You know, is, you know I mean, you, you couldn't get Thomas in there if you wanted, you know, is kind of the point. Um, uh, so there's an interesting relationship between kind of physical format and uh, uh, what you actually have in the Bible. Um, other items, this was discovered in the 1930s, I think 31 was when this was first published. Other manuscripts in the same collection, probably from the same location in Egypt, are uh, P46 of the Pauline Epistles, P47 of Revelation, kind of the big three manuscripts that were discovered in the 30s that um, got sort of 20th century textual criticism going. It sort of stagnated after Westcott and Hort in the 1880s, and this kind of got it going again uh, with the Chester Beatty papyri. The, uh, the next volume here is Codex Vaticanus, and this, of course, is a, a famous uh, manuscript uh, written in the fourth century, um, uh, unique among Bible manuscripts in that it's a three-column manuscript. Uh, typically, a Bible manuscript would be single column, sometimes double, but Vaticanus has three. Um, you'll notice that it's, uh, well, and I should say something about this particular volume. This is a uh, reproduction, uh, facsimile reproduction of the manuscript down to the shape of the pages. If there was an imperfection in the vellum so that there's a hole in it, they cut a hole out in the reproduction. Um, they only produced 500 of these, I think it was, for the uh, millennium in 2000. Uh, the Vatican did, and we purchased one of them for a lot of money. Notice the size of this. This is not only the New Testament, but it's also the Septuagint along with the Apocrypha. And in, in distinction from the papyrus manuscripts where you only had a limited physical size, with parchment, it's much thinner material, and uh, you can get much larger pages. Obviously, this is life-size. Um, so you can, for the first time, get a whole Bible in one volume. Previous to this, you would have a Codex of the Gospels, you'd have a Codex of Paul, you'd have Catholic epistles floating around randomly. Uh, for the first time in the fourth century, it was technologically possible to have what we would call a Bible um, uh, in a single book. Uh, well, Biblos, that's where the word comes from. Um, now, immediately, uh, in the fifth and then especially in the sixth century, they abandoned this because it's incredibly expensive. Uh, the Codex Sinaiticus, which you might be familiar with in, in the British Library, British Museum, uh, they now have it on display in a nice library there. Um, larger format, much more deluxe, actually, than Codex Vaticanus even. Uh, there are three, because of the size of it, I think the number is 392 or 393 uh, baby goats had to die to make that manuscript. Some think that Sinaiticus and Vaticanus are both uh, two of the 50 copies of the Bible that Constantine ordered Eusebius to produce. And there's some paleographic evidence, some, some writing evidence to support that. You know, uh, but the point is, why do we still have these? It's because somebody got this you know, $8 million book and said, nobody is touching this. I'm locking this up forever, uh, kind of a thing. And the Codex Sinaiticus was eventually donated probably in the 7th century already to Mount Sinai, which is why it was preserved for Tischendorf to steal in the 19th century, uh, basically. <laughs> Um, one feature of Codex Vaticanus I should point out here, this is open conveniently to the ending of Mark. And you don't get this in your Nestle apparatus. I don't know how you would you, uh, uh, indicate this in the apparatus. But you notice there's a blank uh, end of the column and then a complete blank column and then Luke begins on the next page. For every other book in the manuscript, the next book begins on the immediate next column. 
So you'd have Mark and then Luke. And if you Luke, it ends in the middle, and then John starts in the next column. Most people, and, and I think they're probably right, take this as evidence that Claudius von Aconis knew about the longer ending of Mark, but for whatever reason didn't copy it in there. Uh, maybe the scribe didn't feel authorized to write it in, or he had two copies and wasn't sure which to follow, and, and left it for the corrector, the Diorthes, uh, Diorthes to, uh, to write it in later, perhaps. Um, but evidence here of a knowledge of the longer ending, but Vaticanus does not have a copy of it. This actually continues in many uh, medieval manuscripts where there's uh, notations like Mark ends here, but other verses are added later, and then you have the longer ending. Um, so actually looking at the manuscript sometimes is important for trying to figure out what they know about in terms of texts. Um, so pretty significant manuscript. It's in the Vatican Library. Uh, this particular manuscript was uh, written with a very light uh, peach-colored ink, and it started to fade in the 9th century. So somebody uh, went over it. And if you look at this, it's actually a very rough hand. It's not very elegant. Uh, it's kind of chicken scratchy, you know. And uh, so they retraced it, but words they didn't like, they didn't retrace or, you know, wrote over it. So you, you kind of have two layers going on there. And there's actually about four or five later hands after the 9th century that added notes or corrected things down to the 15th century. Um, so it was a heavily used manuscript, probably as an exemplar copy for other copies. Uh, now this one is... is uh, sort of live biblical manuscript the seminary owns. Um, it came from the Walter Meyer collection. Walter Meyer was a rare book aficionado, and we have a lot of Luther uh, first editions that came from Walter Meyer and were, uh, well, purchased by the library, but at, but at a good price uh, when he, from his family. But this was part of that collection. It's Now, they list the date here, and the date they get from the guy who sold it to Walter Meyer um, lists the 12th century. Uh, that's kind of optimistic. The script is probably later. I sent it to a guy I'm working with in, in uh, Belgium, and he says probably 14th century. But it's a manuscript of the Catholic Epistles and Revelation, uh, a Vulgate manuscript. Kind of unusual because, um, I mean, why make copies of Catholic Epistles and Revelation? It's not really used liturgically. Um, some features of this book are kind of odd. They forgot to copy a few pages of Revelation, so they're just kind of not there. And uh, one, of the, one of the sections they noticed later and wrote it, but in the wrong place. So it's, the point is it doesn't look like it was really used a whole lot. It's maybe a, a showpiece or something. It's, it's a very abbreviated Latin, typical of the day. Uh, one interesting feature here, it has the glossa ordinaria in the interlinear. So the large letters of the biblical text in an interlinear and in the margins are sort of a medieval study Bible, actually would be the way to phrase it. So difficult words, uh, difficult concepts would be laid out in this smaller script, and there are several kind of standard versions of this uh, in, in Vulgate manuscripts in the Middle Ages. Um, so it's, it's, it's textually kind of worthless, but it's an interesting piece. Um, and you can tell, like, like see the, the, here there was an uh, imperfection in the vellum, and it was stitched up and reused. See, so manuscripts like Vaticanus or Sinaiticus that I mentioned before, you would never see that. See, those, those manuscripts were, were deluxe in every way. This is common in uh, biblical manuscripts. We have imperfections that just kind of work around it. Uh, now, this one is, is uh, I can't believe they pulled it out for you because I thought this was like nuclear bomb proof or something, but this, this is actually the Bach Bible. Um, somehow, and this is another one of these apocryphal stories, um, after the war, this Bible ended up in a farmer's barn in Michigan. And... Um, was donated to the seminary, and uh, uh, it's not a facsimile. 
So uh, they pulled it out of the vault for you. Uh, in any case, it's, it's significant because it uh, is, is annotated by Bach. And he has frequent comments on musical notations or themes. And you, know, you can actually purchase some images, which are kind of nicely done. Um, here, he's actually closely reading the text because he noticed a printer's error. And, and he's that familiar with the text that he knows there's a mistake. So he writes in the correction in his margin which is actually what a normal scribe would do. <laughs> you have a mistake and you, you fill it in. So he's, he's kind of doing what, what uh, users of manuscripts have always done. Um, it's a three volume uh, edition of the Luther Bible. So uh, um, we have here the uh, New Testament volume. Uh, so pretty, pretty uh, significant piece here. So it's actually box on handwriting.